This episode of Earl Grey is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. Hi, this is Marina Sirdis, Deanna Troy from Star Trek The Next Generation. You're listening to Trek FM. Welcome to another cup of Earl Grey, Trek FM's dedicated podcast to the next generation. I'm your host, Joe Keegan. Amy is away this week, but unfortunately, because of the nature of why she's away, we can't really tell you anything about it, otherwise we'll have to kill you. Joined with me, however, is my other usual host, the amazing Justin Oza. Justin, how are you today? I'm doing good, but I do know why she's away. Does that mean you need to come over from Scotland and kill me? But remember, we're not allowed to tell anybody. Okay, but just because I know, you don't have to come over and kill me, right? I saw your name signed on an NDA. (laughs) You're not allowed to do it. Not allowed to disclose it. All right, that's fine. But I'm doing great. Great to be here again, talking about the next generation. So exciting. This is my Saturdays are for, like podcasting and watching TNG episodes. It's amazing. Yeah. Love it. <laughs> we have some Babel Conference feedback for Earl Grey 287, which was our part three of the science in TNG. Justin, take it away, please. Yeah, Stefan Ringline says, best episode title of the year. So, so uh, listeners, the episode title of that was Population 9 Billion All Joe, which I think is a, is a great title. Uh, the most amazing planet in all the universes. Just saying. Yeah, I don't know. All those 9 billion Joes might do away with the original one. That might not be good. So, uh, <laughs> Stefan goes on to say, Great discussion and a lot of new things to learn. Love these science episodes that Joe brings up. It's great that Star Trek doesn't just show us the future's inventions, but also makes one think about the moral and ethical implications which are connected to present-day struggles of where to draw the line. Great episode choices. I love the metaphasic shield and that it's used already half a year later in Descent Part 2. If I'm not mistaken, the Prometheus in Voyager's Message in a Bottle had metaphasic shields. And I'll just add here, afterwards I went ahead and looked that up, and Message in a Bottle has regenerative shielding, but there is a Voyager episode, Resistance, which does have a reference to metaphasic shielding, which I had forgotten about. So, (laughs) And then Stefan uh, continues and says, What an interesting approach to second chances. I never thought about it from the point of view of cloning, but there are some interesting aspects. I think society should create some ground rules before Joe starts to duplicate himself. Otherwise, those clones will rise up against him one day. Looking forward to the next science episode. So thank you, Stefan. So glad you enjoyed the episode. And yeah, we need some rules in place before Joe goes off and starts cloning himself. I mean, even you can agree on that, right? feel like I'm getting some kind of complex, that I'm some kind of wannabe dictator, that I want to kind of control all of humanity and kill lots of people. This is just simply not true. Well, you do often on this show want to kill fictional characters, so where's the line between fiction and reality? Um, 
I'm not entirely sure if there is one at all. That's disturbing. Well, maybe we should keep going. True. <laughs> okay, Stefan, thanks for um, enjoying the science in TNG. I don't know if we need rules before people start cloning themselves. No, he said we need rules before you start cloning yourself. Well, I think that's rude. <laughs> I'm a nice guy, I think. That's true, a we shouldn't single you out. would be amazing. Yeah. Anyways, Chris Tribuzio, our associate producer, says, Well, Amy Nelson, I'm sure the idea of cloning has most certainly crossed your mind, especially how, how useful it would be during STLV, because then you, or clone Amy, could catch all the panels before, oh, say, 11 a.m., 12 p.m., um, panels in other areas of the hall. That'd be really useful. Like Prime Joe could just stay in bed or have a leisurely day at the pool where he would send clone Joes to go and see all the fun panels. Yeah, but what if clone Joe, who's a clone of you, mm -hmm. would also want to stay in bed? Would you force him? Of course, he's a clone. Oh I'm my Prime God. Joe. <laughs> all right. I've got priority. It's like the Bobbyverse books, the oldest copy of Bob in any one solar system is the leader of that solar system. Hmm. Just saying. That these would be my rules as well. All right. Well, hopefully we don't see that day. <laughs> Thanks, everyone, for your Babel Conference feedback. Please keep leaving us feedback, and you might be lucky enough to have us read it out live on Earth. So we're going to get into this episode where we're talking about undercover missions. But first of all, we have somebody as a special guest who is on an undercover mission themselves. We have with us today, Christos Generis. Christos, welcome to Earl Grey. Thank you. Welcome to be here. So nice to see your wee face. Love it. Can you, Christos, tell us about your history with Star Trek? Sure. Um, I think my earliest memories of Star Trek are probably being around five or six years old when uh, Rapha Khan came out. I'm kind of dating myself a little there, but... Uh, my dad uh, was, I think, a big fan of TOS and the, the movies, so my younger brother and I really took notice of those movies, and then um, I think I was about 10 when TNG premiered, and that was my Star Trek. I mean, I literally watched every episode, first run from there on, and uh, uh, you know, the movies that followed, and DS9 and Voyager. I remember probably getting a little disconnected there in the 90s when I was in college, and uh, but uh, definitely coming back and finishing Voyager, Enterprise, I pretty much love it all. Nice. So it's a really similar story to me, in fact. Um, it, it was my mum that got me into Star Trek original series reruns. And then I was a teenager when I started catching up with TNG. Um, and then it's kind of been that way ever since. I did also have a kind of a, a dark zone in the mid-90s where I kind of just stopped watching and then came back to it, and it's kind of blown up with SDLV and cosplaying and podcasting now, so... Yeah, it's really funny. I um, Same thing, I, I even when I was in high school, I went to my first conventions in Cleveland, Ohio, and Leonard Nimoy was my first convention, and then I had about a, at least a 20-year gap until I went to STLV three years ago, where uh, wow. I picked that back up again. So it's kind of funny how it all kind of comes back around. Oh, that's so cool. I think Leonard Nimoy was the first person, Star Trek actor that I met at a book signing when I was 19. And I was like a gibbering mess. And then I met Andrew Robinson a couple of years later at another book signing. And I was less of a mess because I realized that you can't behave like that way in front of famous people. 
Amy just looked like a fool. I'm quite jealous of uh, both of you because my first convention was after Leonard Nimoy had passed, so never got to see him at a convention, unfortunately. Mm. Yeah. I will say there were literally thousands and thousands of people in his convention hall in Cleveland, Ohio, and so mm. I only saw him from afar. He wasn't doing a, a sort of meet and greet or signing right. or anything. But like you got that. to see so, him live. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's pretty cool. That's very cool. Yeah. I met him one to one. Really? It was a book signing. Yeah. Mm, nice. And I won that one. Cool. <laughs> so, you you win them all, Joe. You win them all. I know. I can't. I'm really competitive. <laughs> Sorry. So, Christos, can you tell us why you wanted to come on today and talk about undercover missions? I think uh, I really like the idea of what this uh, episode is. I mean, there's so many instances in Star Trek and TNG specifically where where people have gone undercover, and whether it's been undercover for stealth or trying to infiltrate, as we'll probably talk about in unification, or just to preserve the prime directive, um, uh, it's a common theme to go undercover, and um, I think there's a lot of aspects of it that uh, people don't think about, like universal translators and things like that, so it'd be kind of cool to talk about it. Or like having fingers when you should have weird kind of pods on the end. Yeah, they really needed to do some additional cosmetic surgery for Riker, but whatever. Exactly. Well, I suppose if you're wearing gloves or mittens, as we would call them, <laughs> yeah. then maybe that level of cosmetic surgery isn't required. Mm. Although you'd think they'd have some kind of, and we'll get into it later, but have some kind of um, kind of bio-dampening field that made them look like mm-hmm. they were that race or genetically like that race. But anyway, that's just where... Yeah. But then, Joe, where would be the drama? And exactly, and we'd have nothing to talk Didn't about. Giorgio used something like that in the season of Discovery when she was on the Klingon homeworld. Oh, she did. Yeah, that's right. Well, in Discovery, also, I think they use it when Tyler and Burnham are on the the Klingon ship. They use something to dampen their biosign. So maybe it's a, a lost art by the twenty fourth century. I don't know. It was that Section thirty one thing that got lost? And then you have the jumpsuit or whatever the suit that uh, Data wears in um, Insurrection to completely disguise himself from the locals. Oh yeah, the the. The, the cloaking kind of, kind of cloaking suit. Thing. Yeah. Cloaking suit, yeah. Which is a huge duck blind. is a huge undercover mission. It yeah. goes awry, unfortunately. A lot of similarities to Who Watches the Watchers and Insurrection. Indeed. It's like a sequel. So anyway, we can't we can't go over all of them, but I think there are specific ones we had uh, selected out. Yes. We're going to get into this discussion just now, and we're going to start with the episode Who Watches the Watchers. Now, I, like Christos, had introduced me to the Star Trek com- um, Next Generation Companion. I didn't realise I had a copy. I don't even even know if it's mine or Ewan's. So um, it's, a, it's an amazing book and it's full of really interesting facts. So who watches the Watchers? It turns out that the location on the planet um, where they filmed it is the Vasquez Rocks in California. It's near Los Angeles, I think. Yeah, and um, it's where they filmed scenes from the original series episodes Arena, Friday's Child, Shore Leave, and The Alternative Factor. Plus other stuff like Star Trek 2009, I think, for the scenes on Vulcan. Oh, really? I didn't know that. That's obviously not in my really old copy of The Companion. <laughs> so right. I'm sure they filmed lots of things there. Also, on the day that they filmed, it was about 100 degrees Fahrenheit, and that's 37 degrees Celsius if you're anywhere else in the world and they weren't allowed to wear deodorant or any perfume in case it attracted bees or scorpions or snakes oh boy much much fun we could have a whole episode across star trek of things where they had to uh film it in really hot conditions outside but 
Yeah. Really hot, really cold. This was also probably one of the very first episodes of TNG, a um, little bit in The Survivors, which aired right before this one, but where they really kind of went on location and the show really mm-hmm. changed in the way it looked on film. Um, you know, it was a kind of next generation really grew up when it went into season three and it just looked yeah. a lot more with the on location shooting. It just looked, it just made the show look a lot better. Yeah. So I think the addition of the, the collars on their uniforms made it look more mature as well. Cause that, just that exposed neckline just was a bit strange looking. I think it grew up in a lot of ways. The writing, it, it was a big, it was a big leap in season three. You definitely see the difference in uh, production and quality. Could I ask yeah. a philosophical question that always comes up when I think about this episode? Sure. <laughs> so, like, in thinking about the undercover aspect of it, what has always struck me is, I'm trying to remember, but this might be the first place in Star Trek that we see that there are people from Starfleet or associated with the Federation doing this kind of surveillance on a pre-warp civilization. And I've always thought, like... And and it kind of happens in uh, another episode here, First Contact. Like, there's a potential for things to go really wrong. And and the Federation seems to think, like, if we do this surveillance behind this holographic duck blind, or if we try to blend in with the population as those people, we can gain more. I think I talk about more in First Contact, but we can gain more information so that when we first meet in space, you know, we'll know more how to how to handle it or whatever. But I think that it can be really dangerous because if something goes wrong, the culture can be contaminated. It can change like the whole society. So I I wonder what you guys think, like, is it worth it that they do this or should they not be doing that and just be looking at things from orbit or probes or whatever? You make a really good point. And I guess who watches the watchers really does illustrate, you know, what can go wrong. Um, but, you know, and who watches the Watchers, you know, they're nowhere close to being a warp civilization. Yeah, they're like Bronze Age, so they're like a long way away, right? Right. And so this is more like anthropology research going on here. You're not, there's, there's not even going to be a preparation for first contact. It's as though that's obviously probably hundreds of years away for this society. So it's just really interesting to, uh, like, they're, you know, just really spying to hopefully learn something about early, uh, the early humans as Picard references in that episode i think another thing is troy at one point says that they're a, a proto-vulcan mm-hmm. race at the bronze age that's where that end point comes up um so i think from an that kind of anthropological view then you would want to see what early vulcans if they had that some kind of almost parallel evolution what they were like what vulcans might have been like when they were in their own bronze age oh i was going to say you know what's interesting uh, they do talk about the proto-Vulcan. Um, and other than the fact that they, you know, resemble Vulcans and they have darker skin and the ears and whatnot, but they never really touch, do these people have any sort of uh, telepathic powers or mm. or anything like that? So I think that might have been, maybe it would have been a lot to jam into an episode that seems a little rushed to begin with. But, um, yeah, I think that why would you compare them to the Vulcans other than, you know, some of the way they look? We're not mm-hmm. going to touch on the fact that there's a, potentially some telepathic abilities that these people may be in the early form of developing. Because having pointy ears doesn't really make you being like a Vulcan, does it? So there's way more th- more to it. Yeah, and I want to know what conditions on a planet lead to pointed ears, you know? Like, <laughs> it just seems... Anyway, who knows? But, but like, I, and I think this one's interesting because 
So something happens, the culture is kind of contaminated. They think Picard is a god and all this stuff. He has to come down and prove to them that he's mortal. But like in the end, it is kind of like everything shakes out okay because like their eyes have been open to different possibilities. And, you know, I I think it is a, a great episode and there's some really moving stuff in there, but it could have very well, you know, gone very wrong. But it just always struck me when I first came to that episode, like, huh, why are they doing that? Like if they have the prime directive and it's so important to not contaminate the cultures, why are they increasing the likelihood by placing people on the planet, you know? So I suppose we do that like modern day scientists and anthropologists do that on Earth when they investigate kind of Amazonian tribes that have been untouched by the modern world. Um, so we can get to understand how they work and what their that's that's true. But societies we are like. we haven't had on Earth an agreement of something like the Prime Directive, but the Federation has, no. and it's supposed to be really important. And yet they're like, well, but it's also important to gather this information, so let's risk it. You know. Yeah. And maybe it only like fails once out of every thousand times or something, but you know, the one time it fails, it could be a real problem. If it if it didn't fail all the time, we wouldn't really have an episode to <laughs> talk about. Maybe, so. like, maybe it is that one in a hundred that we're experiencing here. I have a question of what do you guys think of the should Beverly Crusher have let uh Lico die? Well, I think there's two questions like it's definitely in Be- in Beverly's character to do that. There's no question she was gonna do that. But like, you know, I I was actually kind of thinking about this recently because um, there's a podcast that I like to to listen to, which is called Clear and Vivid, which is hosted by Alan Alda, who's most famous for being like Hawkeye Pearson in in MASH. But like, and he was interviewing Melinda Gates and Melinda and Bill Gates have this foundation where they do all kinds of work in, you know, different parts of the world. And it was interesting to listen to her talk about what they do in in different cultures to improve uh, situations in terms of like sanitation and disease and and you know people that are uh, you know have a really low status or maybe abused or whatever, but they actually go and try to like understand what's going on and to fit in and to gradually like kind of work on kind of changing beliefs. So in the context of Star Trek, I was thinking about, well, that's kind of like not having a prime directive and believing that you can kind of do something better. But, but like in, in that case, it, it can save lives and, and, and people who were oppressed can be free from that oppression and all that, although the culture and beliefs would be changing. So it kind of actually made me think like, cause I've thought before the prime directive is in place in Star Trek because something, things have gone terribly wrong before, um, and so they want to really avoid that, but it just makes me think like, well, maybe why shouldn't they help out when they can, because the Federation does have, have the best of intentions and maybe sometimes it won't work out, but maybe sometimes it won't work out as well, not intervening like a planet dies or there's this horrible disease people are going through or whatever. It just made me think of it like in a, in a different in a different light. Like at the same time in Star Trek, they have so much more power and technology and someone could really take advantage of that. So I was feeling like a little more conflicted about it than I usually do when I was watching it. Yeah. It's, it's not the first time we've seen Picard and Crusher, I think kind of get into it over the prime directive. I think uh, another good episode is uh, symbiosis, but symbiosis yeah. where, uh, you know, where they, the, you know, it, it's not like 
in this case where they're you know they they are exposed they are Starfleet but they're you know they have yeah. technology and knowledge that would benefit another race but they have to keep it to themselves yeah so. well Crusher says that they've already been contaminated because this guy is missing or or they saw things on the ship or whatever at that point the so line, yeah yeah so but but yeah when in doubt Beverly Crusher is going to uh, work on helping people and saving lives. Prime directive be damned. I think that's definitely her position. Overrides in her mind. Oh yeah. I think all the time we see the prime directive being kind of invoked. Is it not because? Well, I'm, th- I'm thinking of like um, people that make documentaries on animals, like mm-hmm. David Attenborough. If a, a gazelle, a baby gazelle, has been chased by a cheetah, and they don't intervene to help it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah. All those kind of wildlife documentaries. The the people with the power, i.e., the humans in those situations, don't do anything to help because it's natural world. So, as long as like your alien civilization and Star Trek is doing what it naturally does, then you don't interfere with it. Mm-hmm. But in all the ca- all the cases that we see in Star Trek, generally something has gone wrong. I Starfleet has caused some kind of change which wasn't natural and so we had to intervene to to get it back to normal so um an- another point I think I have on this episode and pretty much any episode that involves um, of the several we're going to talk about today is the idea of the universal translator I mean Troy and Riker <laughs> being down and start to interact and universal translators I guess are great in the sense that they they translate but you know, wouldn't there be like same way in unification and and the birth contact episode? You know, the fact that people's mouths aren't syncing up to what's coming, what you're what you're audibly hearing. Yeah, wouldn't that just be very? I mean, it's just one of those things that we're supposed to accept as the audience for the sake of storytelling. But it's just really one of those things where you know you would not be undercover. It would be very obvious that this person mm-hmm. is speaking. You know, there's some sort of audio playing here in a translation and or the mouth is not lining up or, you know. Yeah, it happens all the time, though. I think it's just something Star Trek hasn't done very well, this universal translator, and it's just kind of been glossed over. Um, yeah. There's some kind of device producing the audio translation, but your mouth's, mouth wouldn't necessarily match up or 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 you could tell it's not coming from your mouth yeah i mean you have to oftentimes look past that and there's only been a very few places in star trek i think where they've been realistic about it a few places in discovery and on in star trek beyond but for the most part like it it's not unless somehow <laughs> like if the universal translator is in like a com badge that you're concealing and it has the ability to uh, you know, make it seem like it's coming out of your mouth and also, like, for the other person to have a holographic projection of how the mouth should move. You'd have to get into something really complicated. Like, it's definitely not realistic, and you have to kind of look past it for the storytelling purpose, I think. But it's just, like, one of the things they bring back to us every once in a while. Uhura uh, in Star Trek Six, where she's looking through the Klingon books about what to, uh, you know... We have to we have to say it. The universal translator will be recognized, you know. And she's looking for yeah. books instead of just using the universal translator to tell her what to say, and then she could just repeat it. But you know. or instead of Uhura knowing lots of languages anyway, but you know, <laughs> and all the dialects of those languages. Yeah. 
Yeah. But but you would think for like these undercover missions, that would make it so that unless you actually had learned and could sound like a native speaker, that you couldn't actually go on these missions, you would think, right? Like Troy and Riker going down, like unless they actually had learned how to speak the language. And I would think the only person that could do that would be Data, where he yeah. could like learn it and like actually speak it, but they don't they just kind of gloss past that. Right. Yeah. For both to suspend disbelief there and, and just accept it for the storytelling but it's just one of those things that's like, yeah, this doesn't quite make sense I think um, as viewers, I think I know a lot of people that don't like subtitles and probably wouldn't watch anything if it did have subtitles on it, so Star Trek could easily go down the route, like alien languages are complicated, we don't understand them and if an alien's speaking an alien language we need to provide English subtitles of what they're saying, Discovery does it Yeah, Discovery did that especially yeah. in the first season and I know some people were annoyed by it but I loved it, I loved actually hearing more of the language and I didn't mind reading the subtitles but I know for a lot of people that they didn't like that because it would distract them from the action that was going on Yeah, and it's really cool um, with Discovery as well, um, that uh, you know, they, there's that episode in season 2 here where the sphere um is trying to communicate with Discovery and the Universal yep. Translator becomes infected and it's <laughs> now giving you like maybe more of a realistic uh, what the Universal Translator actually does, even on the bridge where everyone you would think it yeah. knows the same language, but maybe they're not speaking the same language. Yeah, that was interesting yeah. way to do it, yeah. Interestingly, this is the first time we've seen the subcutaneous transponders that mm -hmm. Riker and Troy wore. Just like the ones that Kirk and Spock wore in Patterns of Force. Oh, that's quite true. So, for our second episode that we're going to talk about is First Contact, the TV show, not the movie. Yep. In this episode, we see teams of kind of First Contact investigators on the planet. Um, of Min is it Mintaka Three? No, Mintaka no, Three was there's one from Who Watches the Watchers. Uh, whatever the planet's called, um, and they are this civilization is close to developing warp um, capability, and so the Federation are looking at making first contact with them because they're so close. Unfortunately, there's been a riot, and Riker's been badly injured and in a hospital, and Picard and Troy make first contact with Science Minister Marasta. Oh, so by the so, way, the planet's Malcor Three. Malcor three. Yeah. Thank you, Justin. The Malcorians, yeah. What what do you think so of what this? What do we think of this? Go ahead. I really like it. Do you know, I was watching it an hour ago and I'm listening to Science Minister Marasta and I was like, I know that voice. Oh yeah. And obviously we're going to talk about Face of the Enemy <laughs> and Marasta plays is played by Carolyn Seymour, who plays Sub-Commander Taris in Contagion and also Commander Tareth in Face of the Enemy. Yeah. She's got a really distinctive voice. Mm -hmm. She's great. I thought this episode was... I said this in an earlier episode of Earl Grey. The frame of mind reminds me of First Contact and Shades of Grey. They have really similar aspects to them. I don't know what you mean by that. <laughs> they just feel really familiar. Um, not the same episode. <laughs> They're very different episodes. Yeah. No, I think it's just the, the Riker being captured for the most part. Okay, or, yeah. or um, disabled in some way, yeah. Exactly, yeah. And Shades of Grey, he was, yeah, like you said, disabled in some way um, by some kind of virus. And I think this is maybe my favourite of those three episodes because I find them all really familiar. 
I love the fact when Picard brings Marasta on board and brings her to 10 forward and she sees her into space. Yeah. I don't think you see a view out the window, but I'd imagine you see she gets to see her planet from space. Yeah. And that's the one thing I want to be able to do is see the Earth from space. I think that would change your whole perspective on things. Yeah, I love those scenes. And, and it's interesting because there's also a scene where Picard brings Nuria, who's one of the Mintakans on board in Who Watches the Watchers, and she gets to see her planet. And then there's also in First Contact, the movie, where Lily comes up and she sees the Earth. So there's something about these situations where people don't know about like advanced civilizations or space travel that Picard likes to bring people on the Enterprise to check it out. I mean, First Contact is interesting because like in, in the other one, there, who watches the watchers are the people behind the duck blind. But in this one, it's clear there are people out and about doing things and Riker is disguised as as this Malkorian and he gets in the hospital and there's, you know, all these these issues that, that, that happen. And this one, of course, doesn't turn out as well because they're basically like, you need to leave <laughs> because this is not working out. Our society's not ready for it. So it's an interesting contrast to Who Watches the Watchers. And I always forget that Marasta actually asks to come aboard the Enterprise and she leaves. Like, I want to see a follow-up story novel or something of like what the heck she is doing because... She's a great character that you only see in this episode. And you, just now you tell me that we don't see it in a novel. Not one that I've read, and I tried to look what? it up on Memory Beta, which is like the resource for the novels, and I don't think that she's in one in the novels either, which is seems like a missed opportunity. But Yeah, because she's a bit like the character from Star Trek IV. Yeah. Now the, the whale specialist woman who ends up coming back to the future with the crew. Yeah, and I think there are some novels that have that character, but mm-hmm. not Maresta Yale. But anyway, what, what do you think of this episode, Christos? Um, actually, I think this is a very good example of some, I mean, like science fiction at its best. It really has a little bit of a, like a Twilight Zone type of um, effect going on there. Um, I remember in my senior year of high school, I took a science fiction literature class. And um, on a Friday, uh, my teacher actually showed this episode in class. And because it had hmm. such big science fiction type um, elements to it. Um, I think um, the whole idea of, you know, you know, in this case, we're, they're, they're monitoring uh, Malcoria 3 because they are close to first contact. They are experimenting with space travel and they're advancing as a civilization. So the Federation is preparing for first contact and um, they're trying to decide, you know, how do you best contact these people when you're finding out they think they're the center of the universe and... Um, you know, they are um, potentially going to be shocked to find out that they're not the center of the universe and that they're they're yeah. not alone. So um, it really kind of makes you wonder, like, you know, how Earth is, you know, you know, if aliens kind of just show themselves tomorrow, what would that do to us, you know, and how would we, you know, react as a society? Yeah. And I think it's interesting, the choice that they make, because the first time that anyone on Malkor 3 knows that there is someone out there outside of their planet is that Marasta Yale's like working in her lab and all of a sudden like Picard and Troy beam in right like imagine if you were like working doing something and all of a sudden these people appear out of nowhere I mean she must be ready for anything because I would be totally frightened I'd be like oh my god what just happened and I think it's interesting that their strategy is to just go in and see like oh let's see the scientist who's leading the work program oh then let's go see the chancellor and kind of like work our way through and it 
definitely backfires because they say they're going to stop their warp program. So they've actually like set them back from their natural course by putting people there. So again, I just question like, do you need to do that? I know you can get more information on the ground, but it seems that there's this real risk that they're taking, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's a little weird that, you know, ultimately one person decides for the whole society to send the Federation away. Like, you get to decide, you're the supreme leader, it's supposed to be like a democracy. Yeah, I mean, you, you would you would think, like, let's say somewhere in the future we have, like, someone who is the leader, the president or prime minister of, the, of, of Earth or something. You would think for something that momentous, it would be like, okay, let's have some debate in our, like, Earth parliament or whatever and let's take a vote on it and see what happens but yeah the one guy is like no no it's, it's too much <laughs> so he has a lot of power yeah i, I want to be the center of the universe still so get out of here you're, you know you're in yeah. my parade so yeah that's a little bit uh i think of a weak little plot point to this episode that it is mm. in the hands of one person but um um but i also think you know i don't know i think uh you kind of also assume too much you don't have a lot of faith in the people to embrace and, you know, maybe look at things differently. Like he's just making a big assumption about them. Right. Because there's this one guy who is this minister who is really resistant and even wants to like martyr himself to, to prove that, you know, Rikers killed him or whatever, who represents a certain faction, but certainly doesn't represent everybody. Maybe there are a lot of people like Marasta Yale that are like, yeah, let's, let's do this and let's see what, what happens. But but yeah, like th- th- that's why it would be really interesting to go back at a later time if it's five years, 10 years, 100 years, 1,000 years and like see what's happened to these these people. I think that would be a really interesting story. And we also see that Marat is not the only one with an open mind. You have uh, Linnell played by B.B. Newworth, who's Lilith from Cheers. Who, who just I wants mean, to seduce Riker. <laughs> yes, but she's obviously not afraid of him. So, oh, you, sure. know, and, you know, and obviously there's... That would imply, too, that there is um, some sort of fiction uh, imagination on this planet where people do consider potential yeah. of aliens from other planets. And it's not, yeah. you know. Im- She's the alien version of a Star Trek fan. <laughs> Maybe. Very she believes much. that aliens exist and she wants to meet them. I was going to say, let's be honest. Let's say that, that aliens came tomorrow. There would be people who have thought about this, science fiction fans, who would be like, yeah, I'm going to go up and like meet this alien species and I'm fascinated and maybe we'll have a relationship or whatever. Of course there would be, you'd think, right? The lady on the roof of uh, the skyscraper in Independence Day. I was just thinking about <laughs> her, take us with you, yeah. And then they all got blown away. Yeah. Oh, uh, dear. Yeah. Is one of the reasons that they first approach Marasta is because they think that scientists are more open-minded um, and more open to being approached in terms of first contact rather than anybody else. I mean, they should have found, they should have found the science fiction fans also, right, on the planet. <laughs> mm, I'm not so sure. Because if, if, like, if it's me, I'm going to go on Facebook and I'm going to tell everybody. That's, yeah, that's Probably yeah. will get believed. Get believed. You, want to, you want to contact somebody maybe with a little bit of power. Oh my god, I got, a, I got a selfie with a real alien. Guys, doesn't this look like an Andorian? Yeah. <laughs> imagine imagine if aliens came to uh, STLV or something like that and said, hey, we're making first contact. It'd be like, oh yeah, yeah, sure. Oh wow, that's an amazing cosplay. <laughs> Great cosplay, exactly. <laughs> or, or your cosplay is terrible. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you're like, you know what? You don't look Made like anybody China. who's been in Star Trek. <laughs> what are you supposed to be? <laughs> that's not screen accurate. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, I was thinking I had a chance to meet 
a number of astronauts a few years ago when I took pupils, uh, um, 24 high school students, to NASA headquarters in Houston. Wow. Um, and one of the questions I, I like to ask was, what was it like when you got up there and you saw the Earth from space for the first time? And I always imagine what like the psychological effect would be and how emotional I would be being in that position, like looking out the, the, the rocket's window and or the International Space Station's window and just seeing Earth yeah. kind of go by underneath me. I think it would be life-changing. I mean, I've, I've read that there have been a lot of astronauts that have had the experience of just like orbiting the Earth and, and seeing that there are no borders, you can't see the conflicts or like the divisions and, and feeling more like that all of those things are small compared to like concerns of the earth as, as a whole. I mean, it does make me wonder if more people travel into space, which it seems like is going to happen this century, if that would start to really shift societal attitudes more toward a Star Trek future. I'm being optimistic about it. Maybe yeah. it'd be different, but I, w I would hope that, that people would, would see that same kind of view. I think that stands to reason. I would hope that that was the case, but obviously we are relatively positive Star Trek fans we are. I mean, with it, a vision of the and future. The, and there are people that are already forming companies to like mine asteroids and things like that. So there is already the perspective of like, let's make some money out of space, which is like a different motivation. So, yeah, know. capitalism in space. Yeah. Although some of the asteroids in the asteroid belt are worth, like they estimate hundreds of trillions of dollars. Yeah, you see that? So if yeah. you can, if you have the means, then... You'd be super rich yeah. very quick. Well, then again, like th then those those resources would be so abundant they wouldn't actually be worth as much, though. So, yeah. <laughs> you ever watch the um, the TV show Mars on National Geographic? It deals a lot with uh, the exploration and the science versus the corporations that want to like mar mine Mars for it, you know, for mm -hmm. its resources. So there's a lot uh, there's a lot of similarities there. Interesting enough, too, on your point about astronauts and what they think after orbiting the Earth for the first time. There's a movie coming out, I think, October 4th. I just saw the trailer the other day with Natalie Portman called Lucy in the Sky. And it's about an astronaut who goes to space. And it, it has a profound effect on her. And she becomes obsessed with going back. And um, to a point of driving her, I think, in a psychotic manner. But... It's just really interesting that the, I just saw this trailer the other day, and it's kind of the point hmm. you were making of how it affects people. But obviously, it's showing a um, a negative effect, but more science yeah. fiction there. Yeah, but I think we're on the cusp in our lifetimes of people being able to more routinely like travel into space and possibly to the moon and Mars and all of that, and that opens up like a lot of different possibilities we haven't really had to think about before. I really, really hope so. Yeah, hope they're good possibilities. <laughs> So let's move on to our third episode, our two-parter that we're going to talk about, and that is Unification, which is just a spectacular Star Trek episode because we get to see Sarek in it again for the last time, and mm -hmm. we also get to see Leonard Nimoy as Spock yeah. later than we were supposed to see him. Yep. He was apparently originally um, to be written into a season two episode. We talked about that on a previous Earl Grey, Joe. Did we? Yeah, yeah. I obviously wasn't there. Yeah, well, this was before you joined us. So, yeah, he was supposed to be in season two for something called Return to Forever that involved, mm -hmm. like, two versions of Spock and the Guardian of Forever. And we, right, yeah. we, we talked about it because there was an outline that a Twitter account called Trek Docs, which is run by some people who worked on on Star Trek, uh, released, like, a, an outline, and we talked about it. You should go back and listen to that, Joe. <laughs> I might do. Do you know what episode it was off the top of your head? It was Earl Grey... 
three numbers here. <laughs> I don't know off the top of my head. Okay, I will um, look up. But 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 yeah, and but I think it it would have cost too much money to have him at that point. But they had him in unification because uh, I think they were able to negotiate something where they could pay him less. But it was a promotion for Undiscovered Country, which came out right. like the next month. Yeah, it was definitely oh, okay. definitely a cross promotion. Um, I think the president of Paramount wanted this to happen, so there was a lot of a lot of pressure to get this done. Yeah, cool. but it is cool. I mean, we got Leonard Nimoy in TNG. It's amazing. Uh, interestingly yeah. enough, I also read in the companion that the Klingon ship that Picard and Data go to Romulus on is the Klingon bird of prey set from Star Trek VI. Is it? Well, I guess that makes sense. It's around the same that's... time. Yeah, that was also another way they were able to save money on this episode, that they were able to use that mm. set. Might as well reuse stuff if you've spent money on it already. Makes sense. So, Joe, if you want to go back, Earl Grey 249, we talked about Return to Forever, they would have had Spock come back. I will be going. You stole my tidbit, but thanks <laughs> Sorry. for the information, Justin. That's okay. So, um, Christos, in terms of the undercover mission, it refers to uh, Data and Picard on their mission to Romulus to try and find out what's happened to Spock. So... What do you think about it? Well, I, well, I think it's actually one of the best episodes. Um, I remember it very well. Um, it was all that hoopla with Star Trek VI. The 25th anniversary was going on, and then you had this awesome two-parter with Spock and Zarek. And, and interestingly enough, I believe Gene Roddenberry passed away the week before this episode aired. So you right. have that, uh, that very special in memoriam before the episode starts. I think it actually just really adds a little bit more gravity to this episode that you have that uh, at the beginning. Um, I think from an undercover mission standpoint, it's very, I mean, I love the Romulans as an antagonist in Star Trek, and I love that TNG um, continued to go there. And I also like that I think they're going to play a big part in Picard. Um, but going to Romulus, I think this is the first time we go to Romulus. We do see them again in Nemesis and um, some other episodes, I believe. But um, um, just, uh, you know, they do a really good job of putting Data and, uh, and Picard to look like Romulan. Of course, universal translator issues aside. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, um, you know, and they get, the, you know, I think they really build a very believable way of how we get them there. You know, going on a Klingon cloak ship that adds a whole little subplot there. And the whole, you know, it's a very clever way. It's very believable. I don't feel like there's anything that happens with getting them to Romulus is a little bit, oh, you know, suspense, disbelief. And, that's, you know, that's a little bit too much of a leap of faith for us as an audience. So I have a little trouble with them not being detected in the, like, time that it takes them. I would think they need to decloak in order to transport down or... I don't remember from the episode. Mm. Oh, yeah, they don't do that. So you, you make a point. I'm not sure if you have to decloak the transport or not. But it's relatively makes sense. I just wanted to put an aside, like, have, have you guys ever seen anybody cosplay as, like, Data or Picard as Romulans? I think that would be interesting. I think it would be really difficult. Yeah. Because you're just going to look like a Romulan. Yeah. But a specific yeah. kind of Romulan. No, I'm thinking in particular like Picard's like coat with like the really high <laughs> collar is quite interesting. Anyway, I want to see someone cosplay I that. I think I used to have the Playmate faction figure of that. Oh, really? Oh, okay. That's cool. I, th I do think um, Romulan outfits are kind of like Romulan military outfits with those... I don't even know what those are. Shoulder they're pads? Just, Big shoulder pads. No, they're, they're not shoulder pads. They're I'd level up from shoulder pads. Um, they're kind of ridiculous. They make everybody look really wide and blocky. Yeah, in, like TN from Minecraft. in, in TNG, those are weird, although I think they downsized it for 
toward Nemesis where it looks a little better, right? Um, yeah, because yeah. I was watching that and then I was watching um, the last episode, Face of the Enemy. There's lots going on in both episodes, yeah. but the outfits just kind of take away from the drama of the episode because it's like bulky and ridiculous looking. There's definitely, a, I think, a desire there to give every Star Trek or major every every major Star Trek alien race their own distinct look so that you kind of know who mm. you're dealing with. And I think there was a need to kind of split the Vulcans from the Romulans because, you know, in some of the early TOS episodes, you know, they look very similar. They do. But I, I, I actually like the TOS Romulan outfits. I think those are, are pretty cool. The TNG ones are a little ridiculous. But, um, but yeah, like they, they had to make them different with the forehead ridges for some reason that's never been explained. But, but I think maybe we were talking about this on an Earl Grey previously, but... Um, in the Picard trailer, you actually see several different kinds of Romulans, like TOS-looking Romulans and TNG and even 2009. So maybe we'll get an explanation. But I think this one is interesting because for the other two, they're going undercover on these pre-warp civilizations. And for this, they're going undercover to an adversary who has warp. But So they're, I don't know, they're, it's not like they're going to contaminate the culture. The drama is more making sure that they're not discovered. So like, how does that change how the episode feels? Definitely not a prime directive episode. This is definitely more of a um, let's not get discovered so we don't get killed episode. But so I think that really kind of sets the tone a lot differently. They have a mission here to find Ambassador Spock and uh, bring him back, basically. Not even necessarily find out why he's there, but, you know, you know they have a pretty clear mission on what they're doing there. Um, so that, I think, lays out the drama of what this episode's all about. And, you know, they're... Some of them are going undercover. I think of the, um, you know, the little restaurant or soup kitchen or whatever that they show up in that everyone seems to like the soup and they're just trying to, you know, blend in and, you know, try and find Pardak. So, cause they think through Pardak, they're going to find Spock. But, um, mm-hmm. yeah, it's just, it's this much different, um, flavor than the other two episodes we've discussed. It's more about, you know, uh, a specific mission and you know there are no prime directive implications there are let's not start a war implications in this episode i mean think about what could potentially have been done if they actually had taken spock and, and data and uh picard and say we captured you guys on our planet and now we're at war i mean so that could have been that that's the stakes we were playing with in this episode what, what do you think joe the th- things that stand out for me in this episode are, are strange. It's the piano scene with the woman <laughs> on the alien planet and Very they're trying good. to find Damon Solok. Like, I love the fact, like, I, I play the piano, so that kind of resonates with me. I love the fact that she's got four arms. Yeah. And, like, she's playing some kind of alien organ that's got two keyboards on it. And then, all of a sudden, Riker can play the piano and he's quite good. Yeah. Which we've never really known and before. I, don't think, I think it's the first, for the first time. time, maybe. Yeah, not just a trombone. Yeah. He's a multi-instrumental player. So, uh, very common amongst musicians that they can uh, they're multi-talented yeah. there. Yeah, true, true. I also love the scene between Data and Picard on the Klingon Bird of Prey where Picard is trying to get some sleep <laughs> and Data's just standing there. I kind of love that because you can tell that they're filling time, but there's something about it that's very charming, like their interaction. Yes. So I don't yeah. mind that it's there, but it's filling time. It doesn't really add to the plot. It totally makes sense, yeah. <laughs> and it brings some levity to what is a really serious episode otherwise. But the whole undercover mission, they just see when they're just walking about looking for Pardek. 
I know they are undercover, but then it quickly changes to them kind of being out in the open um, in that whatever city or village they're in and openly talking. And there's a teenager that brings the ancient Vulcan book when he shouldn't be doing that. And they're just talk Spock, Data, Picard and Pardek are all just standing around talking. So there seems to be less secrecy about it. Yeah, yeah it, it, it's interesting because of the ones we've talked about so far, First Contact is the only one where most of the people who are there don't actually know what happened, right? Whereas in Who Watches the Watchers, okay, it's out in the open in the end, they were they were here. And in Unification, it's out in the open, they're here. And it seems like they're not very good at staying undercover, but somehow they work through it in First Contact and only really get seen by a handful of people or something like that. Yeah. I think another really interesting point you learned during the undercover aspect of this um, is that, you, you you know, the uh, soup woman, as she's referred to in the uh, script, um, she's never given a name. Um, she's very paranoid. And um, she actually, I think, suspects that Data and Picard are, you know, maybe working for the Romulan government or maybe even Tal Shiar, which I don't think you've <laughs> ever heard that term yet. Um, in this episode, and it, it kind of goes to show just how what a paranoid people the Romulans are because of maybe how their government right how how their government runs, and you know maybe people disappear, and it's kind of a yeah. kind of some parallel to you know maybe the Soviet Union they were trying to make there, and how they paint the Romulan people, as, you know. But like I said, it's very paranoid and. Um, I just thought that was really interesting that something that we learned, you know, they weren't suspected of being Federation spies. They were being suspected of being, you know, Romulan government uh, operatives. Yeah. Interesting. Oh, there's another, no, there's another little kind of undercover-ish moment that's not between Data and Picard. And it's when the Enterprise basically switches off to lie in wait for oh, the other ship, the pirate true. ship that's trying to steal kind of parts from the, the Federation right. uh, salvage yard from Klim de Kitchen or Dakachin. Yeah, that's that's true. You're right. They're kind of lying in wait, isn't it? I didn't even think about that. Yeah. Yeah, it just occurred to me there. And yeah. apparently it's easy to power down and look like you've been a derelict there for a while. There, I mean, I know some of the things that they do in that scene are probably done for budgeting, but I mean, just the whole beat story of, you know, Riker kind of going on this, mystery mission with the Enterprise is, you know, I think it's an excellent, you know, B plot, which, you know, eventually ties to the A plot. But mm -hmm. um, I think it's one of the reasons that this episode is really good. It's not just about Picard and Data off doing their thing. The Enterprise has some really good things to do. And just the whole space junkyard, you kind of looking around trying to look for identifying ships. I mean, I remember being a kid doing that. But when the Enterprise does power down, um, all the lights turn off and the windows and everything. So it's a little bit unbelievable, you know, like, okay, did they just suddenly turn every light off in the house, so to speak, you know, the way they show it on screen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, there's just some automatic like blackout curtains that come down on all the windows. Maybe. Yeah. That, that would make more <laughs> sense. I think it would have been kind of cool for effect if they had maybe like put the bridge in night mode or something to really illustrate, uh, you know, what happened instead of just turning off all the lights that you see the model do. But yeah. The Enterprise kind of goes in undercover. I, I do sure. like that, that kind of parallel there, you know. Justin, do I have anything so archaic as curtains that come down on the windows? The windows are made of some kind of special material that can go between opaque and transparent, obviously. I think some they kind of mix that of... in an episode. I think in the, 
isn't the episode with um where um the first episode of season two where Troy has the baby, the child. The child. I think she turns, pushes a button and a screen comes over, a I think filter you're right. comes over the window. So the Enterprise does have that technology. But you don't really see that again, do you? I, I mean, I had to dig for that one, so. Yeah, okay. Hmm. Well, anyway. But, but very good, Joe. I don't think of that other undercover mission. I don't know how we got into curtains either. The second last episode that we're going to talk about is another two-parter. Uh, I know Justin and I are going to perhaps have a, a full-blown fist fight in a moment. No, no, um, we'll set that aside. <laughs> yeah, true. Oh, let, let, let's. <laughs> let's, I know. We're too far away. I'm millions of miles away, don't you know? So we're going to talk about Chain of Command parts one and two. And the obvious undercover mission, we saw Picard, Crusher and Worf go to Seltris 3 looking for a suspected Cardassian weapons depot. It's another It's another third planet from its star, just like some of the other episodes. Mentaka 3. Yeah, just in the Goldilocks zone of the planet. It's not too well, warm, it's not too cold. Like here's an interesting thing. I don't know if they say it on screen, but there are some resources for Deep Space Nine that says that Bajor is the 14th planet from its star. So <laughs> there are some weird things like that in Star Trek. 14th. Yeah. Maybe three is always a reference to, you know, Earth being third Earth being the third one, but anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. 14 either. There's lots of rocky inner planets. And the 14th one is just still as close to the sun. Or it's a really big hot star. Yeah, Yeah, I don't know if 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 it really gets explained or if it's just in some of the other resources. But I remember that... uh, from some resource. Anyway, but that's that's, that's beside the point. Seltris 3, undercover mission with, was it, Picard, Crusher, and Worf? It's an interesting team, isn't it, to go on an undercover mission? Well, the, uh, Picard, um, when they're en route on the shuttlecraft, explains why they've been chosen. With the exception of Worf, he says, your choice for this mission is obvious. I think with his security background, the fact he's a strong Klingon and he can beat people up. Yeah. Uh, Crusher's brought on board to... She has this necessary skill to be able to destroy yeah. any metagenic material. And Picard's there because he, when he was on the Stargazer, um, investigated metagenic emissions or subspace frequencies. Or Premier something. expert on that or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think um, I re- was thinking about this a little bit and also reading a little bit in the companion to, you know, you know, Crusher especially, I think, Having been having being a commander and you know having taken the you know the bridge test and all that stuff and in the episode I think before this they show her doing martial art training with Worf and whatnot that it oh, does kind right. of imply that you know she's more than just a doctor but she's you know she's got command abilities and going on a deep mission like this a deep undercover mission like this and dangerous mission it would be more than say just taking a you know just a doctor there's a certain level of understanding of what needs to be done. I think Beverly even demonstrates that at the end of the episode part one, when Picard is going to be captured and Worf wants to go help. But if Worf goes and helps, they're all three going to get captured. And Beverly is very quick to recognize that and make a executive decision that she's now in charge because Picard is captured and her, her orders are get out of here. We need to escape, you know, and, and her decision there on the spot makes that happen. And that's, I think a really good illustration of when, you know, you're acting in the best interest of the mission instead of doing, Hey, that's, that's, that's my lover, Jean-Luc over there. And I don't want anything bad to happen to him. 
you know, there's, um, I think that that really kind of stands out and maybe doesn't uh, cross everyone's mind when they think about this episode. Yeah, the fact that that's their Starfleet training obviously serves them well and they know what to do. I know they're our favorite characters, but they know what to do when in critical situations as they're trained to do. I really like the fact that that whole undercover mission was teased throughout the episode where you saw them training on the holodeck and you yeah. saw the, the risk the riskiness of the whole mission was obvious from how much training they had to do and how tired and exhausted they were after the training. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that was a cool point. It just helped to heighten the, the excitement. Yeah, I like the whole um, aspect that, um, you know, all the drama that's brought in to make this happen, you know, the, the three of them being relieved of their current positions for this, you know, this operation, the replacement of the captain with Jellico, and all the optics that go into not just making this seem like it's a little, you know, little hiatus they're going to go on and go do this mission, but it's, it's kind of a permanent change. And, you know, the fact that even, uh, you know, that I think there's that scene where it's like where they're doing the, um, the change of command and Beverly's kind of beat up and sore and Troy wants to talk to her and she's like, I can't talk about it. You know what I mean? And so the fact that like everybody on the Enterprise except Jellico doesn't really seem to know what Picard and Crusher and Worf are up to just kind of really add some, you know, little gravitas to the whole, you know, the undercover. This is top secret and nobody knows but Jellico. Yeah, I mean, and again, it's one where it's not a pre-warp civilization, but there are all of these stakes. They might be going to war. So when these undercover missions come up, it seems like it's it's really consequential for a planet or for some important empire that we might go to, to war with. So, But I do think it's interesting because you don't often see Beverly in this kind of position where she's going to like go in and use skills other than her being a, a doctor in order to, to get there to, to this area. So I think it's, it's very good. People often think of chain of command in terms of Picard being tortured by Madrid, but the undercover mission I think is, is quite interesting as well, even if it, if it goes badly. Um, but yeah, I mean, what can I say? It's, I think it's, it's it's a good use of, of the plot in the story. I think Chain of Command Part 1 and Part 2 are, are very two very distinct episodes. I mean, ep- mm-hmm. Part 1 is very much a little action-adventure type of, of thing that happens there, and there's a mystery. But by the end of Part 1, okay, we know it's a trap, and Picard has now been captured. And then Part 2 becomes this completely different, serious drama uh, and that, you know, talking about torture and I, I believe human rights campaign, you know, really kind of endorsed this for what it was and for its depiction of torture and whatnot. Um, so, like I said, I really think of like part one and part two being like completely uh, almost two different episodes almost in the sense yeah. of not being a continued story. Really interesting fact that I was really shocked to have just read this this morning was that when they go to... Um, try to get uh, a ride to Seltras 3 and you meet the, uh, the Ferengi, Damon Fulloch, um, and Beverly kind of does the whole Umox thing with him. Mm-hmm. That was supposed to have been on Deep Space Nine and that was written for Quark. But, oh, really? Uh, yeah, but um, they realized that this episode aired one month prior to the premiere of DS9. They had to change that. Oh, interesting. I it didn't realize be, that. It's supposed to be the first crossover other than, of course, the Enterprise being in That'd be interesting if they didn't realize it and they put it in there and people were like, Deep Space Nine? I don't even know that yet. <laughs> I mean, I guess they could have gone there 
Well, you know, they, they do mention at the beginning of this episode that the Kardashians have left the Bajor sector. So at that point, you know, you do know that three of the Kardashians, but it's prior to That's the Federation true. showing up at Emissary. Yeah. So there's a lot of foreshadowing and setting up a DS9 that inadvertently happens in this episode. But that would have been so much interesting if this had just been like a little bit later in production and you would have gotten a quark in yeah. this episode. Although I do think the intention was to set up DS9, which would be the next Star Trek episode that was going to air would be Emissary. And while we're talking about Bajor, I actually looked it up. Bajor is the 11th planet, not the 14th, but that's still pretty far Close off. So Christos, you just stole two of my tidbits, so I'm running out of tidbits for Chain of Command. Another tidbit from Chain of Command is Captain Jellicoe is named after a real-life British fleet commander from World War I's Battle of Jutland. Hmm. And what was that guy's first name? I've no idea. So something Jellicoe. Interesting. Yes, it didn't tell me in the companion, so therefore I do not know. And I'm not sure if you guys are familiar, there are several deleted scenes from this episode, I believe. Um, I know I've, I've got the, the Blu-ray of this episode mm. that uh, kind of puts it together like a movie uh, feature length. And there are a lot of unique uh, special features that are only on that Blu-ray. So Interesting. And I get to well, check out. We'll, we'll uh, get there in our deleted scenes uh, series on Earl Grey. <laughs> but there, yeah, you go. there is one uh, deleted scene that shows Jellicoe being more likable near the beginning, where he's talking to Jordy and Riker about he used to play rugby or something with uh, Jordy's ex-commanding um, officer. Hmm. Yeah. So I might, I might have been less inclined to include him as a villain a couple of weeks I ago. See. <laughs> yeah, I see. Yeah, you know, I, in, in, to your point that you made earlier, Joe, I think that uh, Jellicoe was not supposed to come off as harsh as he did. And but it was kind of done. The film was in the can, you know, as they say. Yeah, and, true. And, and then he obviously becomes um, one of the most uh, hated uh, guest Federation actors, I guess. We also see um, Admiral N- Nechea for the first time in this episode. That's um, true. Yeah. yeah. Is that the first time we see her? Yes. And she's, interestingly, she's not wearing a communicator at all, which is, I was wondering, looking at really? her, why does she look, why does she look funny? Why does she look oh, funny? And it's like, oh, she's not wearing a communicator. I don't know why not, but... Because she's got an admiral uniform yeah. on. Yeah. But yeah, okay, no, I'm, I'm recalling she does look a bit strange. It didn't occur to I me. Could, that it no took me forever to put my finger on it, but I was like, oh, what's wrong with her? Anyway. It seems like Nechev is like a, a constant in The Next Generation. Well, I mean, this is... But we only see her in... Yeah, mid-season six. For the wow, first time, that's really late. You see her there, and then I think a couple more times in TNG and once in DS9. Yeah. So I think that was a big change for TNG and then other episodes after this. Is you know usually we have the like, the bad morals, you know, and but I mean I really like the whole kind of evolution of the Nechea Picard relationship there, and you know not everybody's always you know not everyone's always BFFs, you know, um, with the long history, and she's just kind of kind of curt and to the point. Yeah, person. yeah, I, I like her. me too. Right. Also, in Chain of Command, it's the first time we see the Cardassian phaser, which was described in the production notes as a copper-colored banana. Kind of does look like that. Yeah. Yeah. So I think from the undercover aspect of this, so there is a you know one scene where they go and they I guess said the scene where it was supposed to be Quark, but ends up being the other other Ferengi, and Beverly has to sweet talk them into getting a ride and. Mm-hmm. I feel like there's a lot of things wrong with that scene. And, you know, first yeah. off, you know, they did not portray Gates McFadden as a vamp at all. She didn't, you know, she's wearing a very frumpy 
outfit and her hair is just kind of not so great. And, and I don't mean that anything against Gates. I just think that maybe they would have like tried to, if we're going to, hey, if we're going to try to have to play this off with sex appeal, let's, you know, put her in a different outfit and maybe some different hair to make her more attractive. I don't know. I just, and then she's hanging with Worf and, and Picard who, you know, you know, the captain of the flag Federation flagship, like people aren't going to know who he is. You know what I mean? Um, so I feel like there's like a, it's, you know, once again, we're just, it's there to advance the story of how we get to uh, Feltris three, but unlike unification, how they get to Romulus, I don't feel like it's nearly as believable in Chain of Command. Just like, oh, okay, That's true. we just have to. Ha- maybe it, I, I have a feeling, based on the trivia I just shared, that maybe this was a quick rewrite because it was supposed to be DS Nine, it was supposed to be Quark, yeah. and suddenly it's mm-hmm. like, oh, we have to change this scene completely and rewrite it. And every line yeah. that that uh, they said was written for Quark. So interesting. Uh, I think maybe maybe I answered my own problem, my own point, yeah. but uh, <laughs> it should have. It was. Uh, it's just a little bit weird. It's a weird scene. The last episode, and I think possibly my favorite out of the ones we've talked about today, is Face of the Enemy. And in this episode, we see Troy waking up in darkness, asking for the computer to put the lights on. And there's a Romulan insignia in the background on a console. And then she gets the lights on, looks herself in the mirror, and she's been turned into a Romulan. So she's in a forced undercover mission, and she's on a Romulan warbird. And I think she plays it, Marina Sirtis plays this spectacularly well. As does Carolyn Seymour playing Commander... Tereth. Tereth, yes. Brilliant actor, acting by both of those guys. Um, And I really love this episode. Christos, what have you got to say about it? I actually agree. Out of the five episodes we're discussing today, it's my favorite. I remember loving this episode from the first time I saw it. There's so many things about this episode that are, you know, you get to see Troy in this fish-out-of-water type situation, and you get to see Troy really have to use her empathic powers to save her life, literally. Um, You know, which is awesome. I think I read that this was supposed to be a Beverly episode, but yep, they changed right. it because it made more sense that Troy's empathic powers would really play uh, well mm-hmm. in here. Um, um, and I'm actually, as a Beverly fan, I'm actually really happy with the Troy episode. I think it does work better with Troy. I love that this continues on the underground that we learn about in Unification, Spock underground, um, or we start to learn about the underground, I should say, more, and that the work that Spock is do, do, doing on Romulus is continuing. So... Just that whole, I mean, they say that the TNG was not serialized, but there were some continuing story plots here and there, and it's yes. a really good example of it. Um, you know, you get to see Troy, um, you know, I feel like finally uh, something that happened later in TNG was that Troy and Beverly, they got start, uh, the writing for them started to be, take them a lot more seriously. And they're not just, you know, the um, the nurturers or the, you know, the doctor or, you know, they actually are competent officers who have training. And obviously this is a huge poker game that she's playing through this whole episode to not be discovered. And she just plays it really well, both the actress and the character. Um, it's very believable as we move through the episode, what, you know, the how things happen and, you know, having the way the character has to adjust to things changing constantly. And, I mean, this is like I said, it's a shining moment for Troy. I feel like if you ever look at all seven seasons and four movies, the TNG, it's probably one of Troy's uh, finest moments. 
Yeah. I mean, this is my favorite of them. I think it's one of the very best in, in Star Trek. I think you're right, Christos. It's the only one of these where someone is forced into the undercover mission. She just doesn't really want to be there, but has to do her best. And it's just great all around for the Troy character. And Marina Sirtis does, does an amazing job. Um, I think one of the, the comments that Marina Sirtis has made is that, I know you didn't like this, Joe, when we talked about villains and we talked about Jellico, but Jellico does have Troy wear a regular duty uniform. And Marina Sirtis felt after that point that they were giving her roles to play that didn't necessarily have to do with how she looked, but what the character could do. And Face of the Enemy is one of those because it comes yes. after Chain of Command. So I think that that's one of the reasons this episode kind of works. But but also, like again, you're this time you're not going undercover to go to a planet like in all of the other cases, but this is on a ship. So there's like this really confined environment where you have to do your best to try to get out of the situation and there's actually fewer options. So I think it's the most interesting undercover mission. And it seems like um, at the end, do, I mean, does Tereth and the Romulan crew actually know that Troy isn't Romulan, or they just know that there's something that's not right and she's not actually Tal Shiar? The impression I got was that they know that she's a traitor to the Romulan Empire, and she's been she's defected, essentially, to the Federation, is what they Yeah, they still believe. think she's Romulan, right? They don't have any evidence to suggest yeah. otherwise. I think, you, I think you, that point is, is, is valid. I think if they knew she was a Federation officer undercover, I mean, that could have been grounds for war right you know what i mean Not or they would have put her in the having, brig immediately yeah maybe. Or, or yeah or um you know they would have gone after the enterprise you know or whatever you know there i think yeah. the implications would have been far worse although we've seen the romulans do this to the federation on more than one occasion you know <laughs> yeah. but um you know the, the one vulcan was really a romulan or something like that i don't think yeah, but but it is interesting because you could say it's the only successful undercover mission out of all of these because in the end, Troy doesn't like really blow her cover as somebody who's from the Federation. They do beam over the people who are the defectors, so it's it's very much successful in a way that the others aren't. Like in Chain of Command, it fails. It was a trap. In Unification, they don't actually get Spock back, right? In, in First Contact, things go wrong and they tell them to leave. And who watches the Watchers, despite kind of a happy ending, like the undercover mission of being behind the duck blind and not being discovered fails. So if anything, this is the only successful one in, in some way, which I think is pretty interesting and maybe part of why, what makes it a great episode also. Yeah, I would agree with that completely. I think it's, um, you know, it's, it's, it's high drama. It's very, you know, I think as an audience, we're totally like there the whole episode at the edge of our seat, you know, wondering how it's going to go down. I also think this episode, you know, it does, um, not only does it play off of things that came before it, to your point, you know, Troy changing uniforms, I think the way the audience and, and the writers took the character after that was a lot different, but it also set up Troy's evolution for the rest of the series. I mean, you see her use information from this episode in Timescape, you know, having been on the Romulan ship. Right. That, when that comes up again, it kind of explains a little bit why Troy knows some things, and they use that information again. Um, maybe even sets up a little bit of Troy taking the bridge officer's test in yeah. Season 7. So um, I think it just really, like I said, it, it the show did become a lot more... I think serialized toward the end. I think you figure by the time you're in season six or seven of a show, you, your audience is 
it's your same audience that's been watching all along, and you can take some of that, uh, some of those leaps with it. But um, yeah, I think um, you know, with, with Troy here, you just you just see amazing growth of the character. And to your point, of the five episodes we've discussed, the only successful undercover mission completely. <laughs> I think there's one point that really stands out where you realize how high the stakes are um, for Troy when they're at dinner in the the captain's um, kind of dining area. And Commander Tereth says, why don't you try the Venerine? And you're like, it's like family style. There's like 20 dishes on the table. They're like, oh, the game's completely up. She's going to get caught. Yeah. She won't have a clue what the Venerine is. But genius, she's Tal Shiar. If she doesn't want to try the Venerine, she doesn't have to try the Venerine. So she takes what she wants. Yeah, I've had better Venerine on prison ships. <laughs> yes. Does she take the venerine? Is she no? Yeah, I, th- I think if I remember right, what happens is she ends up taking something, and then they confirm that it's the venerine for her, and and she said, ah, "I've just had better venerine on prison ships." So, yeah. So she takes it, and either they're going to tell her that she's right or wrong. She doesn't say anything, but something like that. Yeah. No, the commander Tereth says, um, "Well, you could at least try it," which made me believe that she didn't pick the venerine. Yeah, I think she, I, I think she chose the wrong dish, but um, she plays it off to your point very well. Um, like I, 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 cause Hey, I'm, I'm Tal Shiar. I'll do what I want. And I think to that also that Tal Shiar, you know, we learn, um, a little bit more about, you know, just how sinister, you know, Romulan society is, you know, I think commander, uh, Taurus mentioned that, you know, she had members of her family disappear or whatnot. Um, and kind of going back to unification with the soup lady, you know, there are people who are afraid of the government in Romulan society. I mean, they are, you know, people do their best to, quote unquote, stay in line for fear that, uh, you know, the, well, now we know the Tal Shiar, but, uh, you know, that, you know, secret government ops are going to, you know, they disappear people. <laughs> and uh, so it, it's a society that is kept in check through the military's actions, you know, and I think that helps explain some of the Romulan uh, subculture a lot more. I think it's maybe similar to how some, possibly some current Earth countries behave maybe towards their citizens. Obviously, I'm not going to name anybody because we might offend some listeners. I think it's more probably a kind of reflection of what modern day Earth is like for some people. Yeah, I think, you know, Star Trek's always been a very, uh, it's always been a mirror for what's happening in our society today. You know, and this episode, I think, to your point, Joe, is a very uh, good example of that. So, who wants some tidbits? Apparently they wanted to kill off Spot in this episode and mention it on screen mm. as like playing into the idea that this was a sequel to Unification. And they were like, they cancelled that idea very quickly said they can't kill off somebody that's so important to the franchise off screen and not have it shown. Yeah. It's cool. It was also the first time that we saw Worf's wig in his ponytail. Hmm. Okay. Which apparently was made of hair sold by Russian, Russian children and cost, they cost $5,000 each. These are these are real tidbits. Did you get that from Memory Alpha? Um, the companion. The companion. Oh wow, that is. I'm weird. looking right at it too. It's wow. in print. Okay. They are sold by Russian children and cost five thousand dollars each. I was like, where where in I mean where in LA do you go to buy hair off Russian children? Is this a thing? But you know, it's um, it's it's appropriate because Worf's foster parents are in Russia. Yeah, it's kind of an interesting fact that it took them six and a half years to get Worf's look right. 
It did because his hair was pretty ridiculous. Okay, this has been super fun talking about this. Can we do our final thoughts very quickly? Christos, speak fast, but your final <laughs> thoughts for undercover missions. You know, there's some really good TNG undercover missions. I think we kind of dissected these really well, and especially the point that Face of the Enemy is the only successful one. Um, and, you know, there's, there's also some other really good gems out there, like Time Zero Part 2. With un- some undercover that's and true. Gambit, and there's some other really great undercover missions out there. So, um, you know, but um, yeah, I, I think it, it's a really cool aspect of Star Trek and definitely a good point for an episode. Cool. Justin, what about you? Yeah, it, it, it's great to look at it in this lens. You're right, Christos, there are other ones, but we can only talk about, about certain ones. And I mean, I think all the ones we talked about, Who Watches the Watchers, First Contact the Episode, Unification, Chain of Command, Face the Enemy, they're all great episodes. Um, so I think there is something about undercover missions that's dramatically very interesting, that reveals things about the characters, it gets us into interesting situations that have to deal with the Prime Directive or possibly going to war or torture or whatever. So you end up getting into a really interesting place. So... Um, it was great talking about these episodes, and I'm glad that uh, you chose this, Christos. Yes, me too. And it's for my what it's worth, Christos. It's really great to see you again. Great I just to can't see wait. You. It's going to be like a year until we see each other again at SLV 2020. Eleven months. So I know. Um, in terms of undercover missions, it's really interesting when you pick a specific aspect of a bunch of episodes because it makes you watch the episodes and try and see different details than you normally would have because if we're just talking about say face of the enemy there's so many things that we can talk about but when it's specifically the undercover mission that troy is on it makes you kind of reanalyze what you think about it so it's been really it's been super fun talking about these six or so episodes that we've five episodes or seven seven on how you count episodes yeah so christos where can people find you online uh, you can find me on Twitter at GreekGuySD, that's San Diego, uh, GreekGuySD, or on Instagram, GreekGeek underscore CG. And I'm also in the Babel Conference, but uh, maybe you need to participate a little bit more there. Wait, are you Greek? <laughs> yes, I am. Oh, wow. <laughs> Who knew? <laughs> Interestingly, I have, like, I know, like, five Greek people, strangely. That's really it's, it's really weird. So if I rank the countries by how many people I know, Greek comes like third or fourth. Uh, you know, strange. I, be, I believe you told me this at STLV, but there may have been a few drinks involved. I've been telling every Greek person that I know. It's <laughs> a <laughs> thing I do. Christos, I would likely like to thank you from the bottom of my heart for guesting on this episode of Earl Grey. It's been great to see you. Thank you for having me. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you for being here. Well, it's been so much fun talking about undercover missions today, but that isn't the only thing we've been talking about here on the network. Here is what you might have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM. To the journey! (laughs) That's all I could think about with that one. This is the Seinfeld in Space episode. I keep waiting for Elaine to show up. I'm trying to think of what Jerry Seinfeld would say in Jerry Seinfeld's tone of voice inside this episode. Can you do can you can you do a good Jerry Seinfeld? Oh, good grief, no. Not even close. I'm trying to think how I would approach doing a Jerry Seinfeld impersonation. It's not coming to me. <laughs> <laughs> He's got that super high pitched da 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 kind of I don't know, kind yeah. of voice. Well that you did really well, the da 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 da. So yeah. There you go. Why don't they just warp out of here? <laughs> Earl Grey. 
time travel and alternate no. timelines. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Unacceptable selection. Please try Unacceptable again. selection. Does this fit no, your I'm original serious. definition of how you define a villain? No. Justin. <laughs> Possibly not. Okay but then, but continue. Let me, okay. Literary treks. The Antares Maelstrom is mentioned by Khan in The Wrath of Khan. He's got his whole big monologue when he's vowing vengeance on James T. Kirk, you know. I'll chase him around the Antares Maelstrom and the runes of Nivea, you know. And runes. So what is the Antares Maelstrom? To my surprise, oh, no one had ever actually written a book or a comic book about the Antares Maelstrom, which Khan famously name checks. Standard Orbit. <laughs> He even has another line like, you're a doctor. Like, he tells his doctor. I'm like, that is so original series. Oh, love it. Like, like if you, I'm telling you guys, like, oh. if you have not seen this episode, you will see Star Trek all over it. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And please leave us a star rating and written review. That helps others to find the show. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, YouTube, Windows Phone, and most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. So, Joe, quick bonus question. <gasps> oh, my favorite bit <laughs> No, podcasting. And we didn't have it last time. Uh, so if you were to go on an undercover mission in the Star Trek universe, where would you want to go? Uh, so many cool places to go. Um, where would I go? Star Trek universe... Um, I think Vulcan, but it's probably too hot. Maybe Vegas level of heat. Um, somewhere really cool. Oh, um, oh, what do you call it? Do you want to describe um, it? Where the Kelpians live. Saru's home planet. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Why is it slipping my mind now? Uh, I want to say Kat, Kat, no, it's not Catan. That's where thing is from. Um, it starts with a K. Kaminar. Kaminar or C, Kaminar by C, okay. which sounds like a Star Wars planet. Hmm. I'm sure there was a Kaminar in Star Wars. But you want to go to Kaminar undercover? Camino. <laughs> so, so what? Uh, before Saru leaves, after, <sighs> later? 24th century, like TNG. Century, all right. Kaminar, yeah, C. Because nice. they'll have joined the Federation and all that, and they'll be cool. Maybe. Do I, I, I do kelpians? Do they eat kelp? No, you well, see they, them they, on harvest, lake? they harvest kelp. They harvest but I don't it. know if they eat it. Yeah, is that imagine? Yeah, it's just a weird name to give your species based on kind of what you do for a living. Federation humor. Yeah, mm, possibly. So, so, do you want to know what, where? What about you? I yes, of course. I want to know where. Yeah, you know, I don't know why I would be going on an undercover mission there, but I would like to go to Andor or Andoria, depending on how you talk about it, because mm. I'm just always fascinated by the Andorians, and it would be really interesting to have some cosmetic surgery, get some blue skin, some white hair, some antennae, and just go undercover for some reason or other. So that'd be cool. I think that would be fun. We need more Andorians. So is it cold? Do you think it's cold everywhere in Andor? 
I don't know. And there's then there's kind of this confusion with what it refers to, whether there's a planet or a moon and whether it's different in Enterprise or later. I don't know. I'd have to mm, look it up. But, but I think it's supposed to be pretty cold overall. Uh, Risa is an obvious choice. I think everyone, we'd all go to Risa. You wouldn't really also. need to be undercover there, probably. But. No, no, true. I would go to all the, the Federation founding worlds. Okay. Telar, Andoria, Vulcan, Earth. Alpha Four? Centauri, I think, also. So we'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm contact. Choose to send to a show and select Earl Grey. That will come right to us, and we might read your email on the show. You can also find the network on Twitter at trekfm and on Facebook at facebook.com trekfm. So, Justin, where can people contact you when you're not trying to infiltrate the good people of Andor? Hmm. I'm dreaming of that a lot. I don't know. I have a special obsession with Andorians. We need to see more. We need an Andorian main character in a Star Trek series. We'll see. Um, but when I'm not thinking about that, you can find me elsewhere on the network, co-hosting The Line, our Star Trek Picard podcast with my friends Chrissy Zalagi and Brandon Shane Matala. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter at TrekFan4747, where I tweet about nothing but Star Trek. And you can find me hanging around the Babel Conference on Facebook. So, Joe, where can people contact you when you're not going undercover on Ryza to find out the latest trends in fashion and pleasure? Because <laughs> you know you know me too well. You know that's exactly what I would be doing. And it wouldn't be really undercover. It would be the opposite. Because I'd be like just in Speedos or something walking along the beach. Yeah, minus cover. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. So you can find me on Twitter at joeyjoe77uk. You can email me and I will guarantee you a personalized response, joepodcasts at gmail.com, or you can get me on the Babel Conference. If you'd like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. We'd like to take this opportunity to recognize our current associate producers, Norman Lau, Michael Huter, Thomas Appel, Chris Trebuzio, Jim McMahon, Joe Keegan, and me, Justin Ozer. Thank you for supporting Trek FM and especially Earl Grey. So join us next time for another cup of Earl Grey. The Picard is pleased! This podcast will self-destruct in 10 seconds. 10, 10 9, 9, 8, 7, 7 6, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1...